Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic Talks production. The simple solution for physical medicine and rehabilitation healthcare professionals trying to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physician and PM&R at Mayo Clinic. Each year, around 800,000 Americans suffer from a stroke. In fact, every 40 seconds, someone in the U.S. is having a stroke. With early interventions, more of these individuals are surviving that first stroke. And most of these patients will be seen by a physiatrist to assist with their functional recovery. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dave Weber, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physiatrist specializing in stroke rehabilitation in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. So remind me of the warning signs of an acute stroke. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, everybody knows about, a, you know, the term heart attack. And, and there's another term, the so-called brain attack. But it really hasn't sort of taken hold in the general public the same way as, as heart attack. When, how many times have you had a, you know, a friend or colleague say, oh, you know, my relative had a brain attack. You, you just really don't hear that. And so there's been a big uh, public education campaign by the American Stroke Association to increase the public's ability to recognize the symptoms of stroke. Uh, their campaign uses the acronym FAST. F stands for face drooping, A stands for arm weakness, S stands for speech difficulty, and T stands for time to call 911. In <laughs> fact, there's a, there's a phrase, time is brain. And it's really true. Time is of the essence in terms of optimizing stroke outcomes. Uh, many of the interventions that we do now, whether that's intravenous, intraarterial, or mechanical thrombectomy, time is critical in terms of uh, the eventual outcome following stroke. The sooner that somebody can get to medical care, uh, the better outcome. So remember, act fast. So what are some of the common stroke symptoms? Well, you know, other than fast, stroke can present with a lot of other symptoms. Things like numbness on one side of the face or body, sudden onset of a visual field cut, or a severe headache, the so-called worst headache of your life. Uh, uh, you might hear the term thunderclap headache. You know, it's interesting. I, I have had patients who have had a history of chronic headaches, and then they went on to have a, an intracerebral hemorrhage. And interestingly, they are able to differentiate their chronic headaches from this so-called worst headache of their life, both in terms of the chronology of how it develops, the severity, the location. So even folks with chronic headaches who go on to have a hemorrhagic stroke, they'll have the ability to differentiate that headache. So let's say I'm observing somebody having a stroke and I activate the fast. I call 911. They get them to the emergency room. What are some of the early interventions that are occurring now? Yeah, if you look at it in kind of big, broad brushstrokes, acute phase intervention can be broken down into intravenous or intraarterial clot-busting drugs, so-called thrombolysis, or there are now uh, devices that can uh, mechanically remove the clot, whether that be a thrombus or an embolus. The time cutoffs for candidacy of these uh, procedures vary, but autonomous of the type of intervention, uh, timely treatment is still paramount. So we talk about risk factors, and some people have great risk factors for stroke, some people don't. 
We have modifiable and unmodifiable risk factors. Can you tell us how we can modify some of the modifiable risk factors? Yeah, that's a great uh, question because, you know, obviously stroke prevention is, is key here. Hypertension is a major contributor to stroke risk, so optimizing blood pressure management is critical. Smoking is, of course, another huge stroke risk factor, so you should really always, always, always counsel your patients about smoking cessation. I'll repeat uh, that too. Always, always, always counsel your patient about smoking cessation. Diabetes is an independent risk factor for stroke, so glucose control is an important part of, of stroke risk management. Dietary indiscretions can also lead to an increased risk of stroke, and it can be a, a variety of poor dietary choices. Diets high in saturated fats, trans fats, and cholesterol can increase blood cholesterol levels. Diets high in sodium can contribute to blood pressure. Diets high in calories, of course, can lead to obesity. And all those are risk factors of, uh, for stroke, of course. So a well-balanced diet containing you know, lots of fruits and vegetables uh, may actually help reduce your, your risk of stroke. Physical inactivity or sloth can also increase one's risk of uh, not just stroke, but also increase to, uh, the risk of heart disease, obesity, hypertension, and all those, of course, can increase one's risk of stroke. So what are some of the non-modifiable risk factors? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously we've talked about things that you can do something about, but there's a lot of things obviously you can't change. Age, gender, family history, race. These are some of the non-modifiable risk factors for stroke. In terms of age, the likelihood of stroke increases uh, with age for both males and females. There's also some gender differences in stroke incidents, as well as uh, factors that are specific to genders, for example, uh, gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or eclampsia. Family history, especially history of a stroke in somebody less than 65, mm -hmm. uh, uh, confers an increased risk of stroke for, for a given individual. Uh, race, of course, is another non-modifiable risk factor for stroke. Uh, for example, African Americans have a higher risk of death for stroke from stroke than do Caucasians, and that may be related in part to the incidence of risk factors such as hypertension or diabetes uh, in that particular uh, population. And finally, uh, above all these, one of the strongest non-modifiable risk factors for stroke is the presence of a prior stroke. A person who has had a prior stroke has a much higher risk of having another stroke than somebody who has never had one. And obviously, you know, this, this makes sense because that person uh, has all of the medical conditions, genetic predisposition, or lifestyle choices that have already led to a stroke. So you really need to be uh, particularly diligent in, in, in those individuals about addressing the other modifiable factors. Are you a physiatrist preparing for your upcoming PM&R Part 2 oral boards? Do you need to brush up on your examination skills? Through a combination of didactic lecture, case vignettes, optional mock oral examinations, and online modules, the PM&R Board Review course can help guide your preparation. This vital course will be held on the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota every spring, just prior to the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation oral examinations. For complete course information, and to receive an email when registration is open, visit ce.mail.edu slash PMR. 
So the individual that survived the stroke has been through the initial phases of acute care. Where should they, or when, where and when should they start stroke rehab? That's a great question, Jeff. You know, ideally, rehabilitation should begin as soon as the person is medically stable. Where, where I work, uh, rehab is actually part of the hospital admission order set so that we can get involved in a very timely fashion. And even if the patient is still in the intensive care unit and say they're on activity restrictions because of intravenous thrombolysis and are on bed rest uh, for the first you know, 24 hours, uh, we can still address issues like passive range of motion and positioning to prevent contractures or skin breakdown. You know, one of the questions that frequently comes up in the acute care hospital setting is the family or the patient will say, when is this all going to go away? What can I expect for recovery? That, that's a, a great question. You know, it's, it's interesting. In terms of the actual neurologic recovery of stroke, folks can continue to recover for one to two years. But uh, as we mentioned earlier, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years, and, and I have patients in my practice who continue to make functional gains throughout their life. It's the difference between improving your, your strength, per se, versus learning techniques or, or, or practicing so that you can adapt to that, uh, that weakness. I, I give the example of, let's say I woke up one day and decided, man, I'm going to become a tightrope walker. I think that would just be fascinating. And I would practice on, you know, a wider rope initially and then a gradually thinner rope. And eventually I can tightrope walk. Well, my strength didn't change, but I worked on it and I, I worked on my balance and agility and I achieved that. It's a similar thing in stroke outcome. The, the person may achieve their, function, their, their neurologic plateau at one to two years, but they can continue to make functional gains throughout their lifetime. Fascinating. So... Uh, when addressing post-acute care hospital stay, what type of facilities do patients go to? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of options for uh, post-hospital rehabilitation. Uh, again, looking at it in generalities, the, the two primary ones are acute inpatient rehabilitation or subacute rehabilitation. Typically, acute inpatient rehabilitation can be, it can be either in a, a freestanding facility or or be part of a larger medical complex. And acute inpatient rehab typically provides three hours of therapy per day at least five days a week. And that includes physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. But let's say your patient isn't just physically capable of that at this time. Not necessarily because of the weakness from their stroke, but just because of their general medical condition, or, or let's say they have some baseline frailty. For those individuals, subacute rehabilitation is perhaps a, a better option because they can still receive all those services in terms of physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, but they can do it at a lower intensity level. Also, another big difference is in acute inpatient rehabilitation, there is the expectation that the patient must participate in three hours of therapy per day. They don't have that same stringent requirement in terms of the justification for subacute rehabilitation. So it allows the patient to sort of titrate their, their, the amount that they're, they're capable of participating in. And you know, it's interesting, I, I deal obviously with a lot of patients and families who think, oh gosh, I've, I've got to have three hours of rehabilitation per day. And you observe them in therapies, and after five or ten minutes, they're already tired, and they, they want to take a rest, or they, they want to return to their hospital bed. And so I, I always counsel those patients and families that, you know, sometimes it's better to just do 
30 minutes of therapy twice a day and have the ability to fully actively participate in that session mm -hmm. uh, to take full advantage of it as opposed to just you know, really just busting your tail so hard for three hours that you aren't taking advantage of, of, the, of, of that level of therapies. Are there any medications that can help speed up the recovery? You know, there, there aren't any medications that are uh, considered current standard of care. Um, there are some things that we'll do in terms of uh, other medications in terms of optimizing sleep hygiene and whatnot, but there aren't any uh, medications that will necessarily uh, facilitate stroke recovery per se at this point. So what do you look for when you're searching for an acute inpatient rehab facility? You know, that's a great question, Jeff, and actually probably one of the most common question I get from, you know, friends and family members and whatnot. Uh, there's the so-called Commission on Accreditation of Rehab Facilities, or CARF, and it's actually an independent, nonprofit uh, accrediting body that accredits not only uh, rehab services, but a variety of other health services. And, you know, no accrediting body can, of course, guarantee you're going to have a, a positive patient experience. But if a facility has CARF accreditation, it indicates that that facility is at least committed to meeting the defined standards of care uh, for the health services that they provide. So uh, some people see it as sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval for, for a facility, if you will. We've been talking about stroke rehabilitation with Dr. Dave Weber, a colleague at Mayo Clinic and a physiatrist specializing in stroke rehab in the physical medicine and rehabilitation department. Thanks for your time, Dave. Thanks, Jeff. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education in a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Online Board Review course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at ce.mayo.edu slash PMRBR online.